In this episode, I'm joined by Adam Meisner, internationally renowned Tai Chi practitioner and meditation teacher. Adam recounts how a troubled childhood saw him begin martial arts and meditation training, and he reflects on his childhood psychic visionary experiences. Adam discusses the nature of internal cultivation, the role of standing practice, and provides a detailed analysis of the remarkable abilities and attainments of his teacher, the Thai Buddhist Arhant, Langpur Jumnya. Adam also shares his current understanding about the true path of meditation, criticizes visualization practices found in Vajrayana Buddhism, questions the efficacy of Tummo meditation, and elaborates on the mechanics of his famous push-hand abilities. So, without further ado, Adam Meisner. Adam Meisner, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm so pleased to be talking with you today. You're very well known for your Tai Chi practice. But actually, and I think this is very interesting, you've said that your real priority and your real calling in life is meditation and the spiritual path. And in fact, you've also described using Tai Chi as a sort of decoy for Mara, for your desires and so on. That, that's it. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Maybe I'm rushing ahead. I'm surprised that you know that, actually. Mm. Yeah, so I'm very interested to talk to you about, about that sort of thing. You've got a very interesting uh, view and approach to meditation and spirituality and the way it intersects with things like Tai Chi. So this is going to be very interesting indeed. Um, I wonder if we might start with the context of your upbringing. Can you say a little something about the context of your upbringing? I know you, you began martial arts at 16. Uh, and actually, to quote you, you said you went the wrong way hard enough to get a little bit of an awakening. So I'm curious if we could go a little bit before you began martial arts at 16. What's the context of your upbringing and how did it lead to beginning martial arts at 16? Uh, yeah, sure. I come from a good family. I was brought up atheist, I guess you'd say. However, from a young age, I had quite a bit of spiritual experience, visions, psychic visions, that kind of thing, a lot, uh, which tormented me because I was atheist. So essentially, I just thought I was insane, which I didn't mind that. But anyway, that's how it was. And then, you know, I was a bit of a crook or whatever when I was young, got in lots of trouble, lots of violence, lots of crime, that kind of stuff and eventually got in enough trouble that I had to straighten out. And uh, my father, who I've always respected a lot, asked me just to try to be on the straight and narrow for six months, basically before you go to court, that kind of thing. And I did, I said, okay, I'll do that out of respect for him. I didn't believe it had any meaning, but I did that. And I knew that I couldn't just do that so I needed to something to straighten me out, and I chose Kung Fu training at that time. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. I'm curious, of course, about these psychic and spiritual visions. What was the content of those? Devas, demons, huh. different planes, that kind of thing. Not much sleep. A lot of eyes open sort of vision. Torment. You know, I'm a true believer that most uh, psychics, it's actually an ailment. If you don't cultivate it, it's an ailment, essentially. And sometimes the ailment's accurate, sometimes it's not, but it drains people. I'm sure you've seen it. They become sick and uh, lose a lot of vitality and eventually sometimes mentally break. So I think it was just an ailment. It wasn't 
something cultivated, you know, it just was what it was. Was the content Indic or was it from any particular, you're saying something like Davis, that makes me think of course of kind of Indic imagery. Uh, what, was this, what was the imagery? You could say angels as well. I mean, I don't think the, my perception of these things is not that they're different for the different traditions. That's just a cultural filter of the reality. Were you able to eventually bring that under control if it's an ailment? Were you able to somehow rectify it and, uh, or, or did you grow out of it? Um, the training made it go away. Actually, for some time I had it under control to a certain extent, but the more I cultivated, the more it went away. Hmm. I, I think you have to pay attention to those things. And if you don't, they go away. My primary Buddhist teacher, who is also extremely psychic and has all kinds of abilities, and uh, he said it just becomes less and less for him as he, his attention's more on Nibbana, let's say, and less on the, the psychic phenomena, it just goes away. Hmm. Very interesting. Did you, um, or have you, I was going to say weaponized this uh, proclivity, but that's not quite what I mean. Um, harnessed it for any other, I mean, have you found some benefits, I suppose, to that, that opening in your psyche that allows for these sorts of experiences? Or is it simply a case of closing it, focusing on other things has been the main relationship you've had towards that? I guess the, the benefit would be uh, an openness to information. However you want to describe how information comes into us, ability to receive information, something like that. I'm definitely not claiming I'm psychic or anything like that. Definitely not. Uh, mm -hmm. That kind of thing is less all the time. However, the ability to receive information is, is more, more clarity and less vision. So can you say something about 16 years old? And that's the time you began both external martial arts, also Tai Chi, which we could classify as internal martial arts, generally speaking, and also meditation. Yeah, I started it all together. Uh, I'm the kind of person that if I have a teacher or somebody that I respect and they tell me something, I just take it as a given. I, I think one of the problems in our society is everybody thinks their view is equally as important as everybody else's. Like people don't believe in experts anymore. And I think this is a big problem. But anyway, I'm not cursed with that, luckily. So when my teacher says, do this, okay. Yes. I don't say why, I just say yes. So I started Kung Fu for Discipline because I saw a documentary on Shaolin and I was kind of inspired by that. And the Sifu said, you should do Tai Chi. It's like putting money in the bank for later. Yes, Sifu. I didn't think twice about it. I just said yes and started doing it. And then a friend of the family started teaching me some basic meditation. It all sort of started within a month of each other. And in no time I was practicing full time. I just was immediately obsessed, I guess. Up until that stage, I was always obsessed with whatever I did. I did art when I was young and I did skateboarding and all kinds of things also, always to a you know, full-time kind of paying attention to it full-time, let's say. So it's just the same with that, but even more so, I guess it's more lifestyle orientated than my previous pursuits. 
So with the meditation and uh, Kung Fu and the Tai Chi, not so much. I just did it because teacher said so at that stage. But still, it was it was everything, you know, many hours a day. You said that martial arts taught you how to train. The Kung Fu taught me how to train for sure. Yeah. Mm. Because the teacher that I had was is a bad man and a very militant teacher. And it was it was seriously hard. It would be quite normal for people to vomit in class from pain. And uh, we're always black and blue and hurt all the time. It was hardcore. But it taught me how to apply effort very well. Uh, most people can't tolerate the training necessary for proper internal cultivation. It's actually more painful in many ways than hard external training. And so that gave me a, a bit of an advantage, I guess. I think internal cultivation maybe popularly is associated with a softer approach. Um, yeah. A gentler approach. So, well, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a popular idea. So can you say something a bit more about what you mean precisely by why, why it's actually more, can be more painful than external martial arts? Well, you know, the, the children of the Yang family, the great Tai Chi family, like wanted to commit suicide because of the training, attempted to commit suicide and run away from home and stuff like that. So it's definitely not gentle. Soft means that you're not contracting the muscle that's released. That's what it means, not that it's gentle. But, well, the pain is serious. And because you have to be, your mind has to be saturated in the body, you have to have a profound level of presence, you experience it all. It's not like when you're hitting a bag or sparring and you're kind of externalized, your attention's on the opponent or the bag or the aggression. And yes, it hurts maybe just as much, but the way your attention interacts with the sensation is not the same. So you have to have a quiet mind and be paying attention, granular attention, at the same time as quite a lot of pain. So it's much more challenging in that way. And everyone that trains with me will agree on that. <laughs> My primary Buddhist teacher focuses a lot on sensation on Vedana. And because to transcend Dukkha, you have to deal with Dukkha. So the first noble truth is to know dukkha, right? It's not to run away from dukkha. It's to experience it directly. So I think it's a great vehicle for that. Does this have something to do with what you call becoming a Tai Chi creature? Becoming a Tai Chi creature means transforming your body, chi, and mind in a certain way that it functions according to the laws of Tai Chi, the universal principles of Tai Chi, functions in a certain way. Now, any other activity sport at least, people cultivate themselves to become suitable for that activity, right? If you want to be a boxer, you skip, you punch, you're fit, you know, you have the abs, the shoulders, the back. You can tell a boxer, a boxer looks like a boxer because they've cultivated a body and mind, a way they focus their attention. They have a different body to a football player, a different body to a karate man, a different body to an artist. So you have to become a Tai Chi creature, but... In current society, people think that you can go do it on Wednesday night and Saturday morning and move around slowly in the park. Well, that might be fine, but it's not Tai Chi because you're not a Tai Chi creature. Now, it's radically different from a normal body, much more than a boxer is from a normal body, let's say. In what ways is a Tai Chi creature radically different? And what does it take to get there? I know, for example, I've heard it said that weight training is a sort of opposite direction. And that's, for example, weight training for 
you know, fitness or aesthetic reasons is incompatible with becoming a Tai, tai Chi creature. So I'm curious, what does it mean to become a Tai Chi creature? And why, why is it so radically different? And how do you acquire it? Okay, so normal athletic activity, uh, making power, whether it's for martial arts or jumping or sprinting, is done via contracting the muscles against the bones to create leverage, something like that, right? That's standard. It doesn't matter if you're doing football or boxing or what you're doing. That's the normal external mode of activity. So in Tai Chi, you want to move and make power by releasing contraction. So straight away, just that is the complete opposite. Completely opposite. Secondly, normally in martial arts, when you get in the zone, aggressive, the chi rises, everything comes up, right? When you get threatened. Uh, in Tai Chi, we want the chi to sink, everything to drop down and be calm and relaxed and the opposite state of the natural turning on. Like when I used to turn on in Kung Fu, it's up, you know, the eyes are bright and it doesn't mean you're not relaxed, but the chi is up. In Tai Chi, we want it to sink. So once again, it's the complete opposite of the normal state. In normal martial arts, you resist and you, you basically go force against force. In Tai Chi, you want to harmonize and follow. So you're using harmony as opposed to uh, intensity. Once again, the absolute opposite. So every aspect of it is kind of the opposite of the natural way. So it's radically different from our normal program. In normal martial arts, you take something like let's say you're learning jab cross or whatever, you get shown it in about one minute. It's easy to understand, but it takes years to get really good at it because your bones get dense, your muscles get strong, you get conditioned, but it, learned, it took one minute to learn and it took years to get good at. In other words, you are cultivating a natural ability. Yep. In Tai Chi, you get shown and you just can't do it at all. And it takes years to find it. And when you find it, you have it. It's a realization, not a gradual conditioning, because you're doing something that's not a natural ability. You're trying to find a new way to do things. So that's what it is and why it's different. And how you do it is by transforming the body, by opening the body primarily. That's the first step, opening the inner body, uh, releasing the flesh away from the bones, uh, releasing the fascial network away from the flesh, opening the the channels, the inner channels, the wind channels, whatever you want to call them, and all this kind of thing so that you can function in a different way. And the primary body of the training is building this. And then when you make the shapes, yeah, you're doing Tai Chi Chuan because the shapes have no magic. I mean, you know, you learn one form or kata or whatever people want to call it. It's not, you know, you've done martial arts. It doesn't mean anything. The magic's not a shape. If it was, anyone could learn it in half an hour and they'd have it. The shape is not special. It's how you make the shape. So I like to say it's not what you do, it's how you do it. It's not how you do it, it's who does it. These are sort of the phases of cultivation. And what were you doing in those early years? You, quite quickly, you, you said you began to train more or less full-time. Um, so what did you what did those hours look like? What exercises or methods were you employing during that time? Well, in the early times, I was doing the 
praying manis, southern Tonglong, Jiao Ga. And uh, so I did fighting, fight training and fighting and external conditioning and strength training, sort of Chinese strength training. Forms, combinations, conditioning, and a lot of Qigong, a lot and a lot of Qigong, not very good Qigong, but what I had access to at the time. I was immediately caught by the fantasy, let's say, uh, the stories of the immortals and the powers. And so, you know, I was up long before sunrise doing hours and hours every day before work. And then after work, even when I was working full time, doing hard labor, sort of 10 hours a day, I was still doing six hours a day. And then when I worked less, I did more and more. I just did whatever I could, what the school demanded and much, much more based on my own research, a lot of it, which was wrong. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You build discipline and you learn. And what about the straightening out? I mean, you came into that endeavor, as you described, to straighten yourself out, really, to try and stay on the straight and narrow. It was part of the motivation. Evidently that you were then captured by as you say, the fantasy of it, and then eventually, I presume, the pursuit of the real thing, and that became your, your, your passion and calling. But what about the straightening out part? Did, did you straighten out right away? Or was, was there a conflict there? How did the straightening out part play out? Oh, it was immediate. I, uh, I didn't even talk to a friend for 18 months. I was alone for 18 months, first 18 months, and then I sort of crept back in and visited with people a little bit, but uh, we just had different lives. And by no means am I perfectly straight now, <laughs> but I was then when I needed to be. You know, that was what I needed at the time. And, it, you know, now I would count that as excessive and dogmatic, and, but it was what I needed, the right medicine for the right ailment. So I'm curious about um, your, your, the, the next steps in your biography in terms of teachers you encountered and so on. I know you were inspired by Master Huang, a video of Master Huang in Tai Chi and so on. But actually, before we do that, standing practice, I think, is one of those iconic means of internal cultivation, particularly in the Chinese arts. And uh, what's the role of standing practice? I know you, you advocate standing practice sometimes for several hours at a time as part of, as part of training. Uh, you're also that way with meditation. You, you favor extended sitting. I've heard you describe that. Um, so what's the role of standing practice? Maybe it has more than one role. And why so, or how much of it should one do? Okay, well, before that, I'd just like to say it's not just Chinese arts. I mean, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he stood for seven days on one of the seven-day cycles, right? My Buddhist teacher would often stand for 24 hours at a time. It's not only Chinese arts. But yes, it's popular in the Chinese arts. The role of it in the way I think about it in, in, in terms of internal martial arts is the purpose is first to align the skeletal structure in such a way so that your muscular system can release as much as possible. So the more correct your bones are, the less your muscles have to work, obviously. If you lean forward, your back muscles work more than if they're perfectly upright. If your shoulder's slightly dislocated, the muscles are working more than they need to and so on and so on. And that can be refined to a very profound degree. So that that allows all of the musculature to release inside the body. When things release, they go down, right? Because of gravity. 
So that combined with a certain mental posture and some other things is to sink the chi, to make the internal energy descend inside the body, down and in, so that it can increase and accumulate. So that's that's it. The purpose of standing is first to correct the structure, second to sink the chi. That's it. It's not an answer all like a lot of people think it is. It's not the most important thing, but it's a primary foundational activity that must be performed. And sometimes for several hours at a time, it seems. Sometimes. I mean, I usually tell people that that's not the way. They should only do, let's say, 30 minutes at a time because I've had countless people that have trained for years, many years, and they tell me I've trained, I stand two hours a day. So, okay, come, come, come. Then they come to my class and in 15 minutes they fall on the ground. They can't stand because standing correctly and standing a long time are not the same thing. <laughs> Check out chick stands eight hours at a time, but they don't have internal power, do they? It's how you do it, not what you do once again. However, yes, sometimes we do a few hours at a time, usually when I'm teaching people because they're doing it wrong and it takes them an hour to even start to do it right. An hour and a half to get it going and then half an hour of actual doing it. Once they get it going, half an hour is sufficient. I don't think you need to overdo it. So at what point did you conceive of the idea of using Tai Chi as a sort of decoy for your ambition and your, you've described it as desire, um, or your obsessed, these obsessive qualities? Yeah, when did you conceive of that relationship between Tai Chi and meditation? Okay, so the first point is that the, the decoy, well, when I say meditation, I mean all spiritual cultivation, not just what I would call meditation, okay, meaning samadhi proper, all this mental development and spiritual cultivation, which is my true interest. I'm not saying I don't love Tai Chi Chuan, I do, but it's definitely secondary. Now, I was, I, striving, striving, you know, practicing samadhi, concentrating till I have nosebleeds. I've never had a nosebleed in my life outside of meditation, so... <laughs> you know, going hard and then realizing over time that desire itself, although I do believe it's needed, I'm not one of these, I don't have a goal, people, definitely not. But that just desperate desire can be a block. So how do I cultivate, how do I trick my ego into wanting something else and still do the spiritual cultivation on the side without the desperate desire attaching to it so that it can bear fruit more efficiently, something like that. Why that realization came, I don't know, but that's, that's how I've done it for a long time. And there was another side to the question, which I've already forgotten. Well, what time in your life did that happen? Did you come to that understanding? In my twenties, I guess, early twenties, something like that. After years of going really hard, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was interested, really interested in fighting for the first time, first years. And then Tai Chi kind of took over, not because of the power that got me into Tai Chi. Definitely. I was attracted to the skills, but doing the meditation alongside and then, you know, sparring with people, my friends, people I love and feeling genuine ill will during the sparring, let's say, really wanting to hurt them. And I remember when that happened to someone I was very affectionate towards. And I just said, I just stood up and looked at him and said, I'm done with this. 
it's over. I'm finished. I'm not training fighting anymore. And then I just focused on Tai Chi as my martial arts expression instead of the more combat orientated stuff. And, uh, you know, it was a way to fulfill that without developing that static between myself and others, which I am too prone to and, and realized it was a negative for me. For some people, I think it's great, but I've always been good at violence and I don't think it's good for me. Can you take us then through the next important encounters in terms of teachers? You mentioned your Buddhist teacher, um, Lang Po, and I think that's who you're talking about. And you know, we, you, you've also mentioned Master Huang and different people. So could you take us chronologically through the next important meetings in terms of teachers? For Tai Chi, I've had many teachers, uh, short term mainly. I pick things up pretty quick, very quickly. So, you know, I, sometimes it's days. I've had teachers I've trained with for days and they've taught me everything they know. I've had teachers that were more long-term in the beginning and as things changed, then less and less formal teachers. Most of what I've learned has been from peers in terms of Tai Chi, where other teachers meet me and they give me what they think will help me because they, they think I can use it. And they're not my teacher formally, we're friends and it's been like that. But my most primarily uh, influential teacher that really changed my life was definitely Long Po Jam Nian, who, who's my, he trained me for quite a few years in, in, I guess you could say Theravada. It's sort of Theravada, his, his take on things. Yeah, I, I, I've always been a bit of a lone wolf. I just do my own thing and meet people and integrate what I can and yeah, keep going. I, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that likes to name drop or rely on lineage or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm sort of specifically averse to it. You know, people look for somebody and they go, oh, this guy has a lineage or whatever. In it, but in this era, I mean, that usually is to make up for their lack of skill. So oh, if people want to learn from me, I want them to learn from me because they can see the skill, not because of somebody else's name. I don't really want to ride on somebody else's uh, coattails or anything like that. It's, it doesn't fit in with my worldview. I wonder if you might say something about how you met Lung Po and and some of the the train he's a, and, and perhaps a bit about him a remarkable man with extraordinary accomplishments in terms of cultivation spirituality energy what uh, i'm not quite sure how to categorize it really uh, what could you say something about him and how it was you met him and the sorts of things you explored together so my introduction into thai buddhism you could say is uh in ajahn chah's lineage i spent a long time in and out of his monasteries for many years i was practicing as ordained as like a white robe yogi they have a tradition there and i'd do that for some months and then i'd leave and i'd go straight into thailand nightlife and sort of challenge myself with the great extremes of these two lives and i i did that for years and i had other people that influenced me and i trained under them but that was in buddhism it was that and that's a very austere 
extremely austere tradition. Uh, I think by any standard, it's extremely ascetic. You know, we sleep three hours a night, maybe four, six nights a week, like that. One night a week, no sleep, practice through. And, you know, it was, it's, it's a hard life. But it gave me something. I, personally, I don't think that's necessary at all. But it gave me something then, and I did that. And I practiced meditation for years, quite a lot. And then I'd heard about Long Po, and somebody told me that he was doing this yearly event, which he was near Chiang Mai, where hundreds of forest monks would come, and it was in the grove of Bodhi trees. It was quite beautiful. And he'd talk for sort of teach for days and days and everyone practiced and he gave lectures and we all drank herbs and it was all this kind of thing at night. So I took a couple students. I'm like, oh, let's go meet this master. Why not? I could speak Thai fluently at that time. So I went and sat down up the back like I do, which was actually around a corner. There were hundreds of monks. So I couldn't even see Long Paul at all. And I'm listening and trying to translate to my guys and give them some insight into what Lung Po is saying, which is very esoteric, actually, not like when, not like the public talks. The sort of private thing, it's a bit different. Or when he's talking to the monks versus the students in the West or something like that. So anyway, we did that. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going home. It's late. I've had enough. These things, they go till early hours of the morning. I usually don't talk about this, but anyway. So his attendant came up to me and said, oh, Long Paul wants, wants you to come with him. I'm like, no, no, it's 1 a.m. I'm going home. I've got like four people that don't speak Thai. They're my responsibility. Sorry, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're going home. He left, came back 10 minutes later again. No, no, I can't come. Like, I have to take care of these people. Third time, okay. I yield. So... He took me off and, I mean, I couldn't even see Long Paul, but, but he pulled me out of the crowd for certain reasons, which I won't talk about on here, and took me in and that was it. I was sort of inside the door with him from then on. So that's how I met him. And yeah, that's how it went. He's, he's an amazing person, actually. I've, I've been around and met teachers, but few have impressed me like, like he has. I think one of the biggest problems in the spiritual world is people talk a lot, which is fine. He talks a lot, actually, but they only talk. So let's say you talk about non-dual. You're a non-dual guy. You talk about non-dual. Okay. If you read enough books, you can talk about that. So what else? Okay. You have a big personality. Maybe you have a lot of charisma. Okay. So these two things don't imply spirituality or attainment at all, right? A big charisma does not imply Attainment, in fact, it can often be the opposite. And having the gift of the gab, well, you can either have the gift of the gab or not. It has nothing to do with it. There's no correlation. So I've seen this kind of thing a lot, and I see it even more these days, and I'm just not impressed. But he, he was impressive. I mean, he carry, carries like 70 kilograms of weight on his body all the time, 23 hours a day, unyielding. He almost never stops. Like I've been with him seven days where he doesn't sleep. He only serves people. He doesn't even sit down to meditate. He only 
is there for everybody else 24 hours a day seven days you know and then when i'm looking after him he's like okay i'm gonna lie down have a sleep five minutes in someone's at the door boom he's up he's looking after them just the selflessness that and that i mean you've done exercise 70 kilograms of weight on one shoulder for one hour you'd be in trouble right let alone for many many years and uh, just that detachment from sensation from vedana right is real it's easy to say oh, i'm beyond suffering but he shows that he's beyond suffering all the time and so you know i'd help him get dressed or something when i'm looking after him and put the stuff on and you look and his legs are black and blue and because he has like rocks that are hitting him on the inside of the rock legs and all kinds of magical devices and stuff and just the development of his body and just the incredible tolerance you know if nothing else that is a transcendence of sensation yeah so this kind of thing plus many other things that i've seen from him convinced me you know he has this uh a presence where if you're in his space you're kind of in bliss you bliss out and not just people with faith i mean i've had friends of the family Jew that are jewish or whatever nothing to do with buddhism they come and they're just intoxicated by it because his uh his spirit and his his prana just radiate and it's it's, it's quite amazing i've also seen many other feats but you know it's not about that just the radiating of bliss and the living for everybody else except for himself is something I haven't seen anywhere else. So I was convinced. But he chose me, really. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. Do you know anything about his life and his training? And how? Yeah, what, can you share information about that and how, how it was? He, he, he be, came into the condition that you found him into be, uh, to be in? His father was a very cultivated person and uh, the Southern tradition, Kao O it's called. It's like the magical tradition in Southern Thailand. Uh, it's Buddhist, but sort of mixed with, I guess, uh, old Hindu traditions. An ex-monk and then disrobed and, you know, they sort of live this life of a yogi, but they're married. And anyway, his wife died, Lung Po's mom died and he lost the plot. And, uh, then the grandfather started looking after Lung Po when he was 10, no, five or something like that. When he was five, he already entered jhana for like 30 hours at a time or something like that. And by the age of 10, he was cultivating such strong metta, the loving kindness, which is not an idea or a visualization or it's emanating, it's intoxicating, it's real. And the training was in southern thailand they'd go out into the sea and put burly do you know what burly is like blood and guts fish guts and stuff in the water and make the sharks frenzy and he'd get in the water and practice the meta mantra and radiate and have to stay in the water to deflect the aggression of the sharks when he was eight or something his job was uh catching crocodiles and he'd use a kata mantra to magnetize them and make them go dopey and grab the crocodiles and sell them so he had to look after his family when he was young and he was well trained in the arts at a very young age it goes on and on his, his life's crazy for nine years he didn't lie down uh, even now to this day he sneaks in little sleeps so when i'm with him i kind of attend to him you know i sit next to him and help do the blessings and so I'm there all the time. 
and it's all very religious and formal, you know, like people come in, he does the chant and goes for 40 minutes or whatever. So he's chanting, da, 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 and we're all like, I oh, hear this again. And within about 10 minutes, he falls asleep because he hasn't slept because he never sleeps. And you see, and he falls asleep, but he, he chants while he's asleep. He's de developed this way to sleep while he's chanting. So he keeps doing the chant while he's asleep. And then towards the end of the chant, he kind of wakes up and comes out. So because he didn't lie down for all these years, he, he learned ways to, I mean, you, if you don't sleep, you die, right? But he doesn't sleep very much. So it's this kind of thing. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. True effort. I mean, his path was meta and effort, I would say. Massive effort. How is it that 70 kg on one shoulder, I assume in some sort of shoulder bag. It's the monastic robe, but underneath it, it's kind of all strapped on. And but because you expose the other arm, you know, so it's like around the shoulder and around his waist like that. Oh, I see. Yeah. How is his body not hopelessly crippled? And how is his mind not completely psychotic after not sleeping? It's not just a case of living or dying. Um, it, it seems medically uh, has been observed, of course, yeah. in a sleep deprivation situation, people begin to hallucinate and become psychotic quite, qu quite uh, reliably. And yeah. with, with that sort of unbalanced, that amount of unbalanced weight on the body, one can only imagine um, the impact it would have on a body. It, uh, um, I mean, he's iron hard, he's got a body. <laughs> but I mean, normal external training can't get you there, can it? But, right. No, I mean, an Arahant is not a normal man. <laughs> Not one that with some little experience. So I'm an arahant because I had an experience. No. Somebody that I can say from my observation is beyond mind and body 24-7. They never are in mind and body. They're beyond mind and body 24-7, which is my definition of an arahant. Long Paul calls it uh, locutora. It's beyond the world. The world being mind and body. So... I mean, how? I don't know. I've done seven days without sleeping. People say you can only do three. It's not true. It's not true. What somebody without cultivation can do and what somebody with cultivation can do are just not the same. They're just not the same at all. Indeed. So what I'm curious about, given your understanding of um, meditation, but also of energetic cultivation, you know, you've got a few different angles on that. You could, I guess, take it from a few different uh, views because you have you have that experience. What is the mechanism that allows a cultivated person to go seven days in your case without sleeping, or or, or in his case, a lifetime of, of very little sleep? Certainly, what is the mechanism, physically, psychologically, energetically, of being able to carry an unbalanced weight like that? Are you have you identified what those what those mechanisms are? Is it simply a set a sort of transcendence? Uh, surely that transcendence wouldn't affect the structure of the body, or perhaps it does. I think it does. Uh, but firstly, I'd like to say my experience definitely says that there isn't a mechanism. There are mechanisms, many. There's not one way. There are many ways. Uh, so he's done a lot of energy work, even though that's not what he teaches or pushes. But it comes directly from the transcendence for him. So this is kind of technical, but 
in my opinion, it all comes from fullness of chi or of prana, right? Now, if you do Tai Chi Chuan or Qi Gong or Nei Gong, you develop this quality, pranayama even, a way to fill up, to have more, many, many, many times more than a normal person of life juice, right? So you're more, you have more, you're more. You can do everything more, right? But from the Buddhist, Theravadan Buddhist way, <laughs> you also become full because of samadhi. Now, jhana, my, when I say meditation, I mean jhana, okay? If I, that's what it means, which is also the classical Indian idea. I, I don't think any mindfulness is meditation. I don't think visualization is meditation. I don't think mantra is meditation, no. They are mental development. Meditation is jhana. So when everything else ceases movement, the mind stops moving, the body definitely stops moving. There's cessation of mind stuff, as they would say in yoga. The, the, the energy of the shen or the spirit of consciousness fills up the body because you're not using any. You're not even breathing. Everything is ceased. You're not using anything, so you become full. So that's how they access it, right? Where somebody that does internal martial arts the Chinese way might access it through other exercises to build it from the bottom up, where in Buddhism like that, they're top-down method, but you still achieve this fullness. And the fullness is what creates the bliss and the ability to sit for many hours and to stay concentrated for many hours. You're superpowered, meaning you have more energy, more power, bigger battery, and I think that's the primary cause. Now, Lung Po says that the energy of samadhi and jhana is great. However, it's of the world, meaning it's dependent on cause and condition, so it runs out, and that's fine, but the energy of nibbana is causeless and forever present. So I don't know how he does it. I'm not at that level, but that would be, according to what he says and what I've observed, it would be that. So when I first met him, I already had the jhanas, some jhana, quite a bit of jhana experience. And he scolded me and said, your jhana is of the world. You need Lakutara jhana. Cultivate this jhana that's beyond the self. Different teachers use different words to mean different things. I mean, I'm definitely not dogmatic about the, what the words mean. People get caught up in uh, definitions, but the definition is whatever your teacher says, right? Words are only there to, to get an idea across. It doesn't matter if the next teacher uses the same word differently. It's meaningless. So, you know, gradually you work out what your teacher means by what they say. But uh, hopefully that kind of answers how I think he does it. Yes, it does. He's incredibly sure. strong and powerful. I mean, uh, we were walking along and he's got a bag in each hand. He's got the 70 or 80 kilograms on his body and a bag of amulets because he give out these amulets all the time. Anyway. So he's got a bag in each hand and one of the other students comes up and goes, look, Paul, let me take that for you. And they grab it out of his hand. They can't even pick it up. He's been walking for an hour like this, just sort of cheery with, you know, 60 kilograms in each hand. And he's a tiny, like he's the size of my wife. He's five foot tall, maybe, you know, the old generation of malnourished ties. They're little, but just the power, you know, it's incredible. 
And it's not just, it's not, it's something else. I mean, it's coming from somewhere else. It comes purely from his, you know, enlightenment, as far as I can tell. He never practices meditation. He doesn't bother. He doesn't do quiet sitting. He doesn't, yeah. He stopped sleeping because he, he realized he had to serve people and he didn't have time. Yeah. So, you know, needless to say, when I meet these teachers that just have fancy talk and stuff, I'm, I'm generally not impressed. <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable. Can you tell then? I mean, I suppose spending so much time around someone like Ong Po, I, I expect there are all sorts of things you notice that one wouldn't immediately think of as being signs, signs of such accomplishment. Uh, you've, you've described several of them there. So can you tell the real deal from the talkers? And if so, what are some of the classic signs of a talker versus an attained person? You're shaking your head. I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. No, no, I mean, I'm shaking my head because uh, for what I'm going to say is certainly not popular. I mean, it's sort of like... People ask about Siddhi and stuff like that. You know, is Siddhi a sign of enlightenment or isn't it? No, I would say Siddhi is not a sign of enlightenment, but no Siddhi is definitely a sign of no enlightenment. So yes, you can have Siddhi and not be enlightened, but you can't be enlightened and not have Siddhi. So definitely I want to see things that aren't normal. Definitely. Now, if you're talking about enlightenment from the Buddhist point of view, now, I mean, I'm not attached to that specific point of view. Uh, it's one way to look at things. It's one aspect of the possibility of what, as far as I can tell, is essentially endless cultivation. I want to see them to be beyond blind, the, the sufferings of mind and body, which I don't think is the end. Okay. I definitely don't think it's the end, but I think it's primary and that is observable right it's observable you just stay with someone long enough you can tell you can tell and uh for me that's been the greatest growth for me has been in the times of great suffering uh i don't think you get much outside of that it's at least not to get beyond mind and body you have to be in a situation that makes you want to <laughs> want to get beyond mind and body and you know i used to think that was the end but i definitely don't think that's the end so there's all kinds of mysteries which i are way beyond my understanding i don't know but for science i want to see some ability right uh, some accomplishment cd means accomplishment right and i want to see them that they're obviously beyond the sufferings of the body and the stresses of the mind and hopefully that they're in bliss or radiate bliss and that they, you know, have that kind of selfless ability to uh, live for others. In other words, not for their own mind and body. I'd call those signs, not fancy talk or lineage or any of that. Certainly not dogmatic obsession with tradition or any of that stuff. I, I call that a sign of not accomplished. <laughs> I think there are a few, if you want, archetypes of 
attainment that come to my mind. And I think this is not necessarily you know, just based on simply on what one, one reads and hears. Right. And so there is this, there's the monk, the highly attained Arhant monk type. There's also an archetype, and I wonder what you think of this, of the sort of hidden enlightened person. Sometimes that's not always associated with non-monastic person going about doing some sort of normal job or other, or being, you know, a homeless vagrant or a high official or, you know, something I agree with that entirely. Yeah. Well, for example, I don't think, uh, being a, you know, like being a monk has got anything to do with it at all. At all. Zero. The purpose of the Sangha is to hold the teachings. That's it. It is to protect the teachings. That's it. And it also provides a lifestyle that some might consider more suitable for practice, but that's arguable. Anyone that's spent real time in monasteries knows it's arguable. <laughs> You just get a micro world of politics and all the same stuff. I mean, I don't think that has anything to do with it, honestly. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter married or unmarried. I have my views about sexual stuff. That's separate. But uh, yeah, I think there are many archetypes, as you say. And there are many versions of what people will call enlightened i mean what does that even mean <laughs> i mean right now we're talking about the buddhist idea of enlightenment meaning beyond suffering right to be beyond suffering which i don't think is the end but i think it's a major piece of the puzzle and so you know what does it mean i mean we're talking about that's nibbana i guess you would say and then there are many other things that can be cultivated i mean the, the internal world is so vast and the further i delve into it the more i realized there are people out there with profound skill, far beyond, far beyond what most people would believe, and in accordance with all of the fantastical stories. And it's vast and broad, and and to become narrow and stuck. Uh, oh, it's this, it's that. You know, it's just Buddhism, it's just Taoism, it's just it's just Theravada. I mean, it, it's a mental illness. It's insane. It's the opposite of freedom. It's developing attachment and narrowness, which is the opposite of openness and freedom. And I think that's where it's at. People will receive grace uh, when they receive grace. Maybe they're married, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're monastic, maybe they're whatever. It's not like we can decide. If we could decide, I'd be, I would have decided long ago. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You can't make it happen. It's not all within our power. We can only pre prepare, right? I like to say that, you know, we strive and strive and then eventually God has pity on you. Okay. <laughs> if you're gonna try that hard, I'll give it to you. It's not the striving that makes it happen. <laughs> You know, people often say to me, aren't you a Buddhist? Aren't you a Taoist? Aren't you? No, I don't identify with any of the great religions. I think they're all beautiful. And more importantly, I think they all carry pieces of the puzzle. It's the exercises and the training that matter to me, not the desire to be 
part of some little group, you know, or to be attached to one ism or another. I have no interest in such things. I'm only interested in the cultivation. I think it's a big mistake to get caught in that kind of thing. That said, I'm extremely pro-religion for the masses. I think one of the biggest problems of our time in the Kali Yuga is the, you know, that religion is not popular and that it's been re replaced with materialism and statism and the worship of the government and that kind of stuff. And I think that traditional religion is the answer for normal people for, when I say normal, I mean non-cultivators, but not the answer for cultivators, quite the opposite actually. So I'm a great lover of religion, but I'm not attached or to any religion. And the same, you know, we're talking about the sort of variations of uh, what attainment means. Well, it's like that too, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. It's vast. Every time I achieve one, I realize there's more. So what do you do? Keep going. We've, I think, begun to uncover some of the threads I was hoping to pick up with you about meditation. You, you, you describe meditation proper. You limit it to a certain kind of training or a certain collection of trainings oriented towards jhana or samadhi, as you pointed out. And uh, you differentiate it from mental development. And in fact, you've also, I've also heard you say that many meditators don't actually meditate. They meditate many, many years, and, and by the definition that you're providing, many of them don't meditate and perhaps don't recognize that that's happening. They're doing something else. So there's several things I'd like to ask you about meditation, but perhaps we could start there. What is the path of meditation as far as you understand it? Let's say someone's going to be trained, or let's say young Adam Meisner is somehow or another going to be trained by you, uh, slightly older, but by no means old, uh, Adam Meisner is going to be trained by you. How would you put him through his paces what if you could give him the perfect training you you got a lot of things wrong you said you you tried this dead ends and so on if you could give him the direct if you want distilled step by step uh, if such a thing can be done what would you say to a young atomizer and how would you take him to the various stages up to where you are now well i'd tell him to do my meditation course <laughs> but so it's not my definition of meditation it's patanjali's definition of meditation it's the buddha's definition of meditation Right? Jhana, Dharana, Samadhi. That's, it's a classical definition of meditation. By mental development, I mean everything else leading up to that. Learning how to be present, learning how to control thought, you know, all the different mental exercises, developing attitudes, uh, mental postures, and so on. And meditation being absorption into the light of consciousness so when the senses fall away when you practice meditation you focus on one object right one object through one sense gate yeah and then as you get deeper that object becomes more simple singular it loses its edges or it just becomes just a color or whatever so first you can hear everything, you can smell everything, you can feel your body, and then you lose sound or you lose the sensation of body and you lose the sense gates until there's only the sense gate of the object left. 
whether that's visual or mental or sound or whatever it is. And then that also falls away. So that's the falling away of the sense gates. And then hopefully what happens is the nimitta arises. You get light. Now, that is because your consciousness is no longer dispersed out into the sense experience. So the light, the energy of consciousness, of spirit, is normally dispersed out through the sense gates. That's what in Buddhism they call vijnana, vijnana, right? sense consciousness, usually translated wrongly as consciousness. Okay, sense consciousness. Now, when the, you shut the doors of sense consciousness, the energy of that consciousness, the chi of the consciousness, congeals, accumulates, because it's no longer being dispersed. And it makes light. That's the nimitta. And when the awareness itself introverts onto itself, and you enter that, that's jhana. That's samadhi. Absorption into pure consciousness. Pure doesn't mean good. It means separated from everything else. Pure gold doesn't have other metals in it. When the consciousness no longer has sight, sound and so on. It's just consciousness itself, pure consciousness, right? That is meditation proper. Now, when you can constantly keep consciousness pure, that's called Nibbana. As the Buddha says, what is Nibbana? Nibbana is the purified jitta, right? The purified jitta. Purified, separated. Consciousness separated from the khandas. Yep. You're familiar with the Theravadan stuff, I guess, so. Yeah, so like that. And uh, so meditation is the based on, on cause and condition version of that. Nibbana is the not based on cause and condition version of that. So the, the non-permanent version versus the permanent version. That's my take on so why meditation is important and why you can't achieve it without samadhi is, well, you don't know what the jitta is, do you? If you, if you can't have it on its own, you don't know what it is. So if I have this glass of water, but it's mixed with milk, it doesn't matter how much I talk about water, I don't know what water is, because I've never seen it separate from milk. So if you try to develop a normal consciousness awareness of underlying everything, but it's always mixed with sight, smell, taste, and so on, well, you don't know what consciousness is. You only know what consciousness mixed with the sense gate is. So until you achieve samadhi, you don't know what consciousness is. So I think it's a fundamental absolutely necessary aspect without it you can't have insight you can't know what the self is to become self-realized uh, you don't realize what is not self not self is obviously everything else except for that that's why the buddha says what is you know uh, form is not self sensations are not self perceptions formations sense consciousness is not self so he goes to a great detail to list what is not self right he doesn't say there is no self. That would have been an easy teaching. There is no self. Instead, he goes to great detail to list all the things that are not self. But he never says the jitta is not self. But he does say the purified jitta is nibbana. So I, I think that it's a great error, actually, in a common understanding of a, sort of the propagated versions of Buddhism about, about the, the doctrine of anatta and stuff like that. But anyway, your question, how do you... Sorry for the deviation. The first thing I would do is say, learn how to sit still in your asana. That's what I do. 
Step one, sit still. Sit still means don't move one iota. Don't move. And you can do that for minimum one hour, then we do the next stage. So when I sort of criticize meditators, you know, I'll teach a meditation class and people come with decades of experience and an hour in they're switching their legs and it's like, you can't even sit still. Forget about meditation. <laughs> you can't sit still. Meditation is the stilling of everything. You can't even still the body. So step one is that. And then we learn how to, you know, watch the mind, ordinary mindfulness, I guess. Because you need to know what you're working with and that it's a mess, right? You know how people say, start, they start practicing, they say, oh, it makes me think. No, it doesn't. You just didn't know you thought so much. So the first step is to realize you're a mess. And then step by step, doing things to cultivate stillness and a pleasant abiding is the way I teach it. To make your mind and body a pleasant place to be so that you want to rest there. The problem is people want to go outside, outside of their mind and body. They sit down and it's after half an hour, oh, I'm going to watch Netflix, oh, I'm going to uh, listen to music, I'm going to whatever. Why do they do that? They do it because they bounce out of their self. And why do they bounce out of their self? Because they're hideous. It's not a nice place to be. No one wants to be somewhere unpleasant. So that's, in my opinion, the true reason for Sila. Why morality is so, one of the reasons why morality is so incredibly important, which I think it is, is you have to be guilt-free. You have to be happy to be with yourself. And uh, if you're not, you can't stay with yourself long enough to absorb into yourself, which is what Samadhi is. So, yeah, I'd, I'd fix their lifestyle, my lifestyle, the student which might not be in accordance with any religious tradition, but in such a way that makes the individual feel guilt-free and at peace with themselves and satisfied so that they can rest. And then uh, they'd learn how to rest with themselves and not run to distraction. And then gradually how to still the mind and, you know, traditional methods. But that, that learning how to rest the mind was a huge, huge thing for me not to focus the mind, to rest the mind. I used to focus too hard and it, I got stuff out of it. But when I realized rest, that was a huge point. Does that answer you kind of? What of course. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Very, very fascinating. You know, you, you emphasized there the, still, the stillness of the body, the ability to sit still for a period of time, minimum an hour, you know, for example. Yeah, start for a beginner, step one. Yeah, right. I know you, you um, sit for several hours at a stretch. Four hours certainly is not unusual for you uh, to sit. Um, I've, heard, I've heard you say that. What, well, it, I, I have two, I suppose, two questions that come, come to that. Assuming an, an uninjured body, an uninjured body. Well, mine's extremely injured, more than anyone else. <laughs> Mine is so injured. Yeah, that's true, yeah. That's true. It doesn't matter. I've had a broken neck, broken back, my knees bad. I've a martial artist. I've had every injury. Right. So, well, assuming an uninjured body, first of all, um, maybe a little bit of acclimatization of the body to a certain posture uh, is um, classical asana training. In other words, yeah, is is needed, and it is simply, I think, for an uninjured body anyway, 
a relatively straightforward acclimatization process. You sort of get used to it. There's that level anyway. Uh, there are perhaps deeper levels to it as well. But for an injured body, and you mentioned yourself, you have lots of injuries and quite severe injuries, um, actually, ruptured discs in your back, quite significant neck injury. I don't know what's happened to your knee, but I assume it's... I've had so many injuries. Right. So I wonder what, what happens there. So what are the barriers to, other than simply straightforward acclimatization, what are the barriers to sitting comfortably? Because for some, that's just simply a matter of acclimatizing to a posture. For others, there are, it seems, perhaps much more significant physical hurdles to overcome. Yeah, like, like for me. Injury, like for you. So yeah, could, could we, can we look at both of those cases and look at what are the obstacles to just simply being able to sit in stillness? Well, okay, so let's say your body's not broken, you sit in stillness long enough, profound pain comes, right? You know, it doesn't matter if you're injured or not, it will come. It's only a matter of when it will come, right? So you have to go there many times. It doesn't matter if it takes you 10 minutes or three hours to get to that point, you have to go there many times. So it's, it's not different. You have to get past the body. The point is to get past the body, not to have a perfect body. I'm talking about meditation. The other side of my training is all about opening the channels and all this kind of thing. So your body is a better machine. So even though I'm injured and stuff, all the channels are open, the chi flows, I don't get pain when I sit. So there's both sides of the coin. But I did it the other way. I did it the Buddhist way first, getting past the body and then tried to fix it later. Now, if I was teaching some myself now, I'd do it the other way. I'd try to fix the body first, but you know, they both work. And you know, people are like, oh no, I have a pain. I, I always laugh, like, oh no, you had a sensation. <laughs> okay, yeah, keep going. Like it's like such a big deal or something. I've never seen anyone's leg fall off in meditation. Nothing happens. Yeah, while it's happening, you feel like the world's going to end because your hips are on fire and you've got nothing hurts as much as sitting still. It, it's, it hurts. But the moment you get up and move around, it's it. Oh, nothing happened. My mind didn't crack. The world didn't crumble. Nothing happened. Right? And so learning about this sort of, uh, it's not important. We place too much importance on our sensations. It's attachment to Vedana, right? Sort of obsessed with pleasant feelings. Back to the first noble truth, to no dukkha, right? Not there is no dukkha. To know it, that means you have to be with it. The reason for the monastic rules and the strictness and the hardship is so you get lots of dukkha. That's the point. You're supposed to have dukkha because without dukkha, you can't learn about dukkha. It's an obvious reality. And if you can't get past some physical dukkha, you can't really get good at meditation because the body will interrupt you all the time, which is why the first limb of yoga is asana. You have to learn, make the body stable and a pleasant place to be, right? So this is fundamental in my opinion and a, a mistake in modern meditation where they kind of, oh, it's okay, sit on a chair or little moments and you know car salesman spirituality <laughs> just be mindful while you wash the dishes 
or whatever. The, the modern corruption of what mindfulness means, just be aware. It's like, no, that's not what it means. The Buddha didn't teach that. It's a, no. It's, the corruption for the marketplace. It's a big problem. Say I think the body has to be developed and then uh, the internal body has to be developed and the mind has to be developed and then the consciousness has to be absorbed into. Or the body has to be developed and the mind has to be developed and the consciousness has to be absorbed into and that develops the internal body. Either way, different directions, same outcome. I wonder if you make a distinction between the body's getting used to a posture, which, which as that develops, I'm going to propose the posture does become easier from a purely physical level. And the, what you're talking about getting beyond the body, which seems more to do with one's relationship to the sensations of the body. Um, mm -hmm. They seem to be too related and they are rather related because I think, as you point out, when one penetrates the body or gets beyond the body, it does it does seem to cause the body to release and let go of a lot of a lot of the bracing, which inhibits sitting in stillness. But nonetheless, there's sort of two different things I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I think you have to get beyond it for attainment, but you need to be comfortable in it to learn how to practice. So, you know, right. they go together. All these things are much more organic than they, they sound when we write about them or talk about them, of course. Real life is round. Things are interwoven. I mean, when we describe something, it seems sort of very clinical, but reality is just not like that. But I would challenge people to realize their limits pretty early on. Sit till you pass out, that kind of thing. Doesn't take very long. <laughs> if you gradually acclimatize over years, it, yeah, it will. But if you realize early by going in hard and you get a bit of a lesson and a realization about your attachment to body and stuff, I think it's more valuable. Not just getting good at something. You're learning something about your, your animal, your mechanism. Your realizations, not just, I'm good at this because I've done it a lot. Yeah, it's like the checkout chick standing there for hours. It doesn't mean anything. It's how you do it. It's why you do it. It's who's doing it. All that. Feel free to shoot this down. Um, I'm proposing it specifically for your response, whatever it might be. I tend, I tend to personally. I don't normally say uh, what I personally think, but I'm, I tend to lean towards the idea, or encourage the idea myself, of a certain level of of differentiating at least at the beginning stages, the bodily acclimatization and the relationship to sensation. Because I think, in a sense, for two reasons. Number one, just knowing that some of the difficulty at first is an acclimatization on a physical level means that we can address that relatively low-hanging fruit first so that some basic kind of stability and also uh, can be achieved in the body. It's also, so I think, it does protect... Around how to sit straight and like do basics. Well, a little bit more than that, I think. There's a kind of reforming of the body into the posture. I think it, a great deal of that can be done in six months to a year. Um, 
I'm not saying it's the only focus, but we understand that that's an early thing that that will be inevitably happening. And then when that's more or less taken, and of course it can develop over many years, but when that's reached a certain threshold, the body then is less likely to be injured. And what you're left with is, as you point out, one's relationship to the body's, uh, the body, the body's um, sensation. And that does tend to still be rather available. Uh, once the body is acclimatized to the position, it seems beyond that point, it doesn't take long, as you point out, it's not like simply getting good at meditating is going to, you'll have, be totally pain-free. It's not really how it works. But you're likely to have a different sort of pain. It's not joint stress. Well, it depends how long you sit. Let's say you, you do, I know you do quite long sits. So let's say you do four hours yeah. and you're skipping with that. So do eight and tell me how your body feels. Or do it with weight on you or whatever. I know that's not what everybody thinks, but if you think you're trying to get beyond body, the body, well, that's not the same as having a skillful body. It's like, oh, your meditation is great because your health's good. Yeah, wonderful. How's that going to serve you at the end? Do you, do you understand what I'm pointing at? I'm not saying it's not skillful to do that, but you need to do both, in my opinion. Or else, when it gets bad, which it will, right, as we age, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm, I can't acclimatize anymore. All my meditation's gone. Because it wasn't meditation, it was comfort. <laughs> yes, very interesting indeed. Thank you. Perhaps, perhaps I will say then that uh, I'm not. I don't mean to imply that it's all acclimatization, but there's simply an element of physical acclimatization to the posture at the beginning, which um, uh, which seems to take six months to a year of regular practice. Or perhaps building the meditation creature, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Life. But people forget about that when they do meditation or Tai Chi or anything else. And I think it's a great error because they realize you have to do it in any other more basic skill. Right? It's, it's like we, we know if we want to do a normal activity, normal conventional activity, you need to follow these certain rules. You need to gradually acclimatize, change, build the creature. You need to do what the teacher says. You need to find an expert. You need to do all these things. But then we want to learn something subtle, hard to see, mysterious. Oh, no, I don't need to change. I don't need a teacher. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's harder. You need more of those things, not less. Like, it's, it takes a long time, I mean... I mean, I'm not saying I'm a master of meditation, far from it. I just have some experience. That's it. And if people try sincerely, hopefully they'll have some experience. And if they can have some experience consistently over a long time, maybe they'll become a master. You said something very interesting in your description of, or of the path of meditation, which is that the inner, one's sort of inner world or one's mind and body are not for many of us, nice places to be, pleasant places to be. So we bounce off it and so on. And one of the things that we find in there is, as you said, guilt. And you also said that morality training or morality codes and the whole area of morality, part, part of, you said that you thought that perhaps it's one of its main purposes is to make it easier to be with oneself in meditation. Yeah. So I'm curious. I think something that often comes up is guilt of things done in the past. 
guilt of certainly tendencies and habits one currently has, but also guilt about things one's done in the past. How would you tell the young Adam Meisner, I guess, to overcome that in your in your view? How does one reconcile or reckon with guilt of past actions? And indeed, and this is a, perhaps a rather different question, how does one adjust one's morality going forward? It's one thing to recognize that one wishes to make some sort of lifestyle change. But to implement that lifestyle change can be another matter entirely. So these are, I suppose, two directions of morality. How do you how do you address those? How do you approach those in your view and your teaching of meditation? Well, restraint is the first step, which I think is a good translation for the word sila, at least the classical sort of Buddhist take on it. It's it's yeah, to restrain your activity. And then I think more important is service. Uh, benefit others. Serve others. Preferably starting in the home, not some exotic like going to Africa to like feed the poor. Like, how about being nice to your wife? How about that? <laughs> so charity starts in the home and all that kind of stuff, you know? So that you build the karma, this sort of returning energy and activity and mental habit of the opposite of guilt. I don't think I don't use a mental trick or a philosophy. I do. Do. Are oh, you depressed? Serve others. No such thing as depressed and serving others. They cannot coexist. You hate yourself, serve others. Be of service. I think this is fundamental. Absolutely fundamental basic do the stuff they talk about in all the great religions not imagine it or visualize goodness going out to the world no that's garbage garbage i did that for years that kind of stuff it didn't do anything work real life stuff actually with your with your body real stuff not imaginary stuff do real things to benefit other people and then you will change and then you'll be somewhere more pleasant to be and then the more internal side is opening the body so the chi flows so that you have the bliss of the chi flowing it's not stagnant it's not painful so that it's a pleasant place to be in that sort of strata of being and you know gearing your life into a way that you're satisfied with so you're not like doing the wrong thing for money, let's say like right livelihood or whatever it is. You know, you're cheating on your wife or whatever. The problem with that is, is that if it makes you feel bad. So when you sit down to meditate, you get images of what you're doing. So you have to adjust your real life. And unfortunately, most meditators want to imagine their way through to enlightenment. I imagine the deva, like a deity, oh, there's a Buddha in my heart, oh yeah. If, if you want imaginary results, practice imagination. If you want real results, do real stuff. I mean, it's obvious. So I think that, do. Get out there and do it. That's, that's what I would say. And, you know, at the same time, you, hopefully you're practicing some kind of uh, the view, insight. And you, you know that you're not your actions and like your thoughts and these things are just phenomenon and 
so you're not too attached to it and you can uh, realize that what you did in the past is not concrete so it's sort of well there's sila and vipassana or like the view and conduct something like that when you talk about imagining morality and, and, and imagining these these things and you said you did yeah. that for some time yeah and then you're talking about imagining a deva and the heart and so on yeah. that makes me think of practices that one might find in Vajrayana Buddhism, for example, of, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, you know, Yadam Naljo, Deity Yoga and so on. Visualizing. Yeah, I've done plenty of that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not into it at all. Hmm. Can you say a bit more about that? Well, if, if you want imaginary results, practice imagination. And what is Nibbana beyond the body and mind? So doing stuff with the mind, I mean, no. All you're doing is making the thief fancy making the troublemaker have nice robes like no that's mental development it has a place but no and certainly in terms of internal work energy work the prana the chi definitely no it doesn't work it doesn't work yes you can develop mental qualities because it's the mind doing mind so it can't take you to meditation because it's the mind doing mind. It can affect the mind, the fabricated false mind, but it also doesn't affect the chi properly or the body properly. So it works on a very thin strata of the most unstable and least real part of your being, right? The ever-changing mind. So when I say mind, I don't mean consciousness. So I know some Buddhists will call use the word mind to mean consciousness, nature of mind, or something like that, but meaning the, the fabrications of mind. They're false. They're not self by definition. So you're making a whole lot of fancy not self. Okay, great. It's a no brainer. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work in my opinion. I know it's not a popular view. I know Vajrayana is incredibly popular and everything, whatever. I don't think it works. I've never observed it to work. And I've cultivated very highly, many, many years of cultivated <laughs> visualization, imagination, and all that kind of stuff. What did you ex explore specifically in that, in that line? I did like Western Hermetics a lot and also different Vajrayana stuff. I mean, it's all the same. Oh, it's a different color. It's a different mantra. It's a different, <laughs> it's a different imagination. I imagine the, the the prana doing this and this channel, and uh, so make it go around in a circle. Make it like a, a pumpkin. I mean, it doesn't matter. Why are there a thousand variations? Ask yourself that. Because it doesn't matter. That's why there's a thousand variations. Because it's not real. So once again, not a popular view. Actually, just, I mean, even recently, I've been debating a little bit with people about it. And, you know, people like it. It's easily accessible, right? You just do it. Oh, yeah, great. I'm holy now. <laughs> you don't have to do real stuff. Don't actually go out there and serve people. Just imagine your love going out to the... <laughs> don't give any money to the beggar. Just imagine that you're a good guy. Mm. Or whatever. I mean, I meant to say my view, right? I'm not, I'm not here to promote any, like, classical view. This is what I think, and I, I'm not uh, unfamiliar with criticism. 
Well, no, I greatly appreciate you putting over your view. You're right. It's not popular, but it's what you think. And I think, and I appreciate you saying what you think. That's excellent. That's what we're here for. It's what I think. And it's also what I've observed with people that do different practices. Right. Fair enough. The people that I've met that are great and that only talk. There's a direct correlation. Huh. People that I've met that I consider to have real skill don't do that stuff. Lots of big names do that stuff, or at least teach it, but I've never seen them display real skill. Or even if they did, let's say, there's nothing to say it came from doing that. The Buddha certainly didn't teach anything like that in, in a historical Buddhism. And in the, the Chinese arts, in proper internal work, no, none of that. None of that in Tai Chi. No, uh, no, I think it's uh, Kali Yuga stuff. Fascinating. Two questions that come from that, and they're different questions, uh, but I just put them out, and we can we can attack them whichever order. First of all, meta. You talked about meta as being a sort of exuding of something that can be felt, uh, or is at least by some or maybe by many depending on the strength i presume and then you also talked about this idea of kind of sending love love and light out in all directions isn't the same thing as moral training so i'm wondering if we could disambiguate that what is meta how does one develop it is it developed simply by imagining good emotions sort of you know feeling them and then sort of sending them out so that's one thing the other thing which is rather different is we're talking now about vajrayana buddhism i'm not an expert on it okay i've done some of it Right. Yeah, fair enough. Well, perhaps maybe that's the end of it then. But then my question would be, what do you think? Have you experimented with or looked into some of the completion stage practices of Vajrayana Buddhism, for example? Like Tumo, Tumo illusory, body, illusory body yoga, etc. Yeah, things like that. I'm wondering what, you know, dream yoga, etc, etc. Maybe even, you know, that'll, that'll take us somewhere, which I'm eventually going to ask you about, which is the sexuality side of, of things. But anyway, what, what do you think of that? So those are two actually really rather different questions, but they've both sprung from what you've been saying in the last 10 minutes. Okay, the meta, I think, uh, well, I've done this sort of projecting and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I did that a lot for years. Then I met Lung Por and I just saw he actually just served people all the time. And his meta was intoxicating and he never once said to imagine it or to project it. Because he did it with his real body, day in and day out. So his reality, his cells emanated. It's real. So I think it, that's it. Do it for real. Be kind. It's pretty basic. Be kind. Not imagine being kind. <laughs> I mean, when you, it sounds silly when you say it like that, right? Be kind, not imagine being kind. So how do you be kind? Well, you act kindly. Yep. You think kindly, you, you do it, and it creates feeling. Right? Actions create feeling. Like if you are in a shitty mood and you go out and be kind to some people, I guarantee your mood will change. The feeling in your cells will change because your chi changes. You start emanating kindness because you are kind at that moment. You don't need to pretend to be kind. So I think it's like that. And then 
you become your this part of your being that is fabricated, the body, energy, and mind is becomes a. It kind of um, how do we say this? You know, it keeps creating itself over and over. It becomes like dependent on the previous condition. So then you naturally are more inclined to that. And it perpetuates. They're perpetuations of mind and body. Samsaring in a positive way. So I think that that is that. Uh, completion stuff, I don't know. Like Tumo, I don't know. If I ever meet someone that can actually do it for real, I mean, I've met plenty of people with real, real internal skill, but none of them from doing that. Uh, I have a view about it. I think it's uh, real inner tech that is lost, and now they visualize what used to be real. So, for example, the energies from the side channels, they come into the central channel, the drops meet, and all this business. That's real. They're real. They're physical. And the instruction was saying, this is what happens like any Asian instruction, they don't tell you exactly how to do it in the book. They just describe what happens, but you need the how-to from a living teacher. And somewhere along the line, the description in the book became the teaching, and then they imagine what is meant to happen, which is real. Like the descending of the drops and those things, they're real. And I know from other traditions how real those things are. So I think it's meant to be that. And somewhere along the line, it's become a the mirage of the real thing. So maybe there are people doing the real thing. Maybe there aren't. I don't know. I'm only talking about what's generally out there and the general attitude about it, where they visualize the fire. Like, no, the fire's real. You don't visualize it and all these things. And, you know, you meet them and they don't have an ounce of chi or internal skill because they imagine the prana changing, moving, the drops moving, it's a no-brainer I mean if you imagine things they're imaginary or you make change on the level of the fabricated mind that's okay but that's a small strata of our being the least real part like the Buddha says you're, you're better off to identify with the body than the mind I mean like the mind changes every second it's the least self so at least get real change in your body. At least it lasts for 80 years. But just in the fabricated mind, I mean, it lasts for a second. It's, it's impermanent. It's not self. So yeah, I just don't think that's where it's at. Not popular view, about to be attacked by everyone in the comments section. <laughs> yes, perhaps, but... That's okay, I'm used to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's great to... You're, you know, you're sharing your view, which is informed not just simply by your own imagination, but by, as you pointed out, your limited but thorough personal experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's by my experience and by observation of people right. that I've met. Yeah. Do you think it would be possible for someone with, uh, who has cultivated a lot of internal capacity and skill to reverse engineer, if we take your proposal as... as um, Sort yes. of working hypothesis that there's some tumo and it's described here, but it's it's just oh, a description yeah. of its outcome, not of its of the method. Is it possible yeah. for someone with a uh, high oh, degree yeah. of internal skill to backwards engineer that, reverse engineer it? Oh, of course. 
100%. Sure, why not? But why would they? They already have internal skill. They didn't need that. They got it from another way. You see what I'm saying? Why, why reverse engineer like some old car when you've already got a good one? Why? But yes, you could. If that's not a rhetorical question, I, I might propose at least yeah, a yeah. couple of answers. Well, right. one of them might be to restore to that tradition. If once again, if we take your hypothesis as the working hypothesis, okay, um, to restore to that tradition, its authentic inner energy work. Um, that seems like a good thing to do or a nice thing to do. Sure. That's one reason. I guess I mean, you don't there need that. There are many that. reasons on the broad way, but for the individual, there's not so many reasons. And it's an individual that has to do it. So the sort of philosophical idea of why to do it, yeah, but then the personal reality is that person's striving to attain or whatever. So I'm just going to step away for five years and reverse engineer this stuff. For It's just unlikely. But yes, you could do it. Definitely. But maybe not. I mean, there are things that I've learned in this work that I would have never thought of, even with my experience. It's not intuitive. Hmm. So I can do all kinds of things with the chi, and then I learn something from somebody. It's like, Wow, I would have never thought of that in a thousand years. So maybe there's keys in there that just aren't intuitive, that just don't relate to other systems. I don't know. And I'm not claiming that nobody does it correctly or anything like that. I'm only saying what I've observed, which is limited. More than most people probably, but limited. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Have you spent time with people who are considered to be attained in that stream of practice um i don't mean that to, to i'm not i'm not uh, begging the question i i think it's an interesting question well why do i say this well first of all lang langpo your teacher remarkable man and of course spending time with such a person one of the things you've said there is that it's changed your idea of what's possible um at least given you evidence of something being possible that's really like out of the stories in a sense and you've hinted also at having noticed or seen a lot of other things that one might, literally yeah. like stories they're right, right. true i would say yeah literal too they're not metaphors right people like so, coming down to metaphors all the time they're not metaphors the skills are real and they, they dumb it down to a metaphor or a visualization. They're real. It's like this thing, I, I can't do it. I've never experienced it. Therefore, it must be what I can do. But back then, they weren't smart enough to explain things, so they used metaphor. <laughs> That's insulting to the tradition. Uh, they were stupid back then, so they, they called it chi but really they just meant breath or or you know or whatever no i don't think that they were stupid or that they couldn't describe things 
I think that we're describing real things. And my experience definitely proves that to me. And yeah, but I'm like, I'm not trying to talk about Vajrayana. I don't know about Vajrayana. It's just, we talked about visualization and yeah, they do a lot of it, <laughs> but so do others. But in my experience, that's it's, what works is changing the body, opening the inner body and cultivating samadhi. So doing body work, doing chi prana work and cultivating samadhi, which means consciousness work. So see, none of that is really mind work. It's like body, prana, consciousness. The sort of least important is the fleeting personality. I always tend to think the personality has very little to do with it. And it, you know, it's also the easiest part to put on, right? When in the beginning we were talking about somebody that talks well and has the charisma, that's just the mind stuff. You could just learn that. And people do. In fact, recently someone was telling me about some cult leader in recent times whose daddy used to teach about the psychology of becoming a cult leader. And he, he grew up and he learned all that and he became a cult leader because <laughs> he knew how to have the charisma and all the stuff. In other words, the talk and the personality or the mind strata. Of course, he had no body skills, no cheese skills and probably couldn't enter absorption. Just the pretend part, the most pretend part of our personality, of our person, the least stable part, the most not self part, the least consistent part, the imper most impermanent part, right? I mean, you know, what changes the most in your experience, right? It's Buddhism 101. I mean, it's just basic reality 101. I think if you cultivate correctly and you have proper experience, separate from the mind, those experiences change you forever, forever. When you have a, a proper experience, even coming out of like, say one of the formless jhanas and the experiences that can come like that, or the transformation of the body and the inner body, those things change you forever. Not a mental activity that you have to repeat the next day, the next day, and that they're not changing you. They're like a veneer. A, a painting on top and if you don't do it for a few days it wears off so yeah I, I i think you understand what i'm pointing at i believe the path is of transformation uh, you do things that create shifts they're irreversible changes like entering the stream or whatever all these kinds of things they change you they transform you they are not just a passing experience in the mind. So I think in order to get them, you have to do real things. Namely, transform the body, the energy body, and absorb, learn how to absorb into consciousness or do meditation proper, enter jhana samadhi. And if we're talking about Buddhism, that's the cause for insight.
The Buddha says, for those without jhana, there is no insight, no vipassana. Right? Not this how you go and do vipassana on the weekend. I mean, there's no such thing. The Buddha never taught a technique called vipassana. Never. He taught jhana. And as a result of jhana, you might have a special kind of sight, an insight. Right? You might have a vipassana, which can become liberating. But you have to be able to absorb into the jitta. That's sort of traditional, really. It shouldn't be radical. It's, it shouldn't invite what it will. It's, it's traditional. At least if you uh, consider the Buddhist canon as traditional, right? Same goes for Taoist work or whatever. For the Tai Chi, it certainly has to be uh, embodied. You don't like imagine a force field and people bounce off you. I mean, that this doesn't happen. It's a transformation into the creature. Or you transform yourself into the Samadhi creature. One that can enter Samadhi easily. Or you transform yourself into the creature that, that can... Uh, recognize the strata of pure consciousness all the time or you or one that recognizes the arising and falling away of you know the particles this kind of thing these experiences they change you because they're deep because they're not mind made it, yes your mind affects the causes you can't do anything without the mind but they're not like a watching a movie I, I really believe that the, these things change you and certainly the levels of attainment I think are permanent. They're shifts. I don't think that they're experiences. They might be accompanied by experience. Yeah. So this is, I hope I'm trying to explain basically why I think that imagination is not the answer. I'm not saying that traditions that use imagination don't produce results. No, I'm sure they do. I just don't think it comes from that. So for example, in the Vajrayana, they do all this stuff and then what do they do in the end? What do they do in the end? Sokchen Mahamudra, right? Well, that's day one in the, in the forest tradition and day two and every day, that's what you do. You don't need the 12 years of study and visualization. You just do that. It's not unique to Vajrayana. Like that's in many traditions, that kind of practice. It's an important kind of practice. It's not the only answer and it doesn't need to be the end. Yeah. I think uh, here's another controversial one. I think they do it. Let's say you imagine in accordance with your tradition for many years. Then you do real practice later, meaning you learn meditation. So you see consciousness and then maybe you become, you get vision and then the vision is of course filtered through your perception. And your perception is well-trained. Your perception is totally conditioned in accordance with your tradition. So you will see it just like you were trained to see it. And bang, yes, I saw this deity just straight exactly like my teacher said. 
But if you had that same vision and without doing all that conditioning of the mind stuff for all those years, maybe you'd see it differently. And when you see it differently, bang, religion shatters. You become non-sectarian, like true attainment makes you. But if you've been conditioned for 10 or 12 years, and then you still have realization, I'm not saying you don't have realization, just it will filter through your conditioned perception gate in accordance with how you were molded. And I think that is very smart in, in the worldly way to make a tradition strong for the social hierarchy that certain religions hold and all of that. But do I think it's ideal for the personal, individual, spiritual cultivation? No, I don't. That makes sense to you? Yes, I see what you're driving at. I've also heard Nundro described as something like that, a kind of tying of oneself to... Exactly. Mm. It's exactly that. Exactly that. And I'm sure it works. I mean, it obviously does. I mean, you meet plenty of people that are they're pretty dogmatic about it. It works. It creates the dogma. It creates the positive side of the dogma, meaning the dedication to the lineage and all that too. But I think that those things, are, they trap us and uh, we want to be free and see truth, not a fabricated version or a through the filter version. To be naked, see it nakedly, I think is better. Yes, I think you weren't wrong when you said that's a controversial one. I understand your I understand your reasoning, but I think yeah, I understand the structure of your point. But it's certainly controversial. Um, no, I mean, most of the things I say are. I mean, uh, well, let's let's take something that's not controversial at all. Uh, sex. <laughs> yeah, that's not risky. <laughs> you know, I've heard you say that um, there are there can be in terms of trends differences in the path of men and women. I've heard you say that and. The rationale I heard you explain was that uh, for men, it's difficult at the beginning, but easier later on. And for women, it's easier at the beginning and more difficult later on. And that's to do with what sort of material one encounters first, initially desire, sexuality, etc. And you made the point that in your view, it's more difficult for men to work through that material. But then after that comes the emotional. And it's, in your view, more difficult for women to work through that material, whilst they can quite quite easily move through the sexual side of things. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Maybe you could say something about that. What about sex then? You mentioned ejaculation. You've also mentioned ejaculation and that's something that needs to be worked with in some sort of a way. So could you explain how you see the sexual side of the path or of, of life relating to the path? I think it's a normal function of life. And unless you're a monastic, you should just have normal sex. And the problem is that in our modern society, normal is a long gone. Because you turn around, you see a 12 foot tall billboard of girl in lingerie who's profoundly attractive, like not even a real person. Or you try to watch a music video and it's all like booty in your face or you scroll Facebook or the list goes on. So what people think is normal sexual desire is extremely deviant meaning it's twisted from its organic nature and it's uh, perpetuated. It's more regular than it should be. So the normal sexual desire would be more like work on a farm, don't look on the internet, don't look at magazines and see how often you wanna have sex and how, right, after years, not what happens when you live in a modern life. So it's already deviant. 
So I think the first step is to return to a moral life. So like, you know, stop being a deviant, stop masturbation, stop having twisted stuff, you know, kind of like all the great religious leaders said, <laughs> every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> like every enlightened master has ever said. Normalize, make your life savory. I think that's sort of the basic level. And then for inner work, you have to have some control over it and uh, like transform the jing, let's say, and the energy, the sexual energy and the basic energy of the body needs to be brought under control. I don't mean doing any weird sexual practices. I think that they're a disaster or the so-called Taoist sexual practice. I think that's deviant at best and a total disaster for one's spiritual path. Because if you mix your sexual urges, let's say the lowest part of yourself, the base chakra and the twisted urges, and you try to mix it with your spiritual urges, which are the highest part of yourself, that corrupts you. And I think that's one of the major causes for the, the crimes of gurus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all these gurus molesting people and stuff, I think it's because of that kind of thing. I think they should be left separate and just made savory. Another unpopular <laughs> view. <laughs> because everyone wants to do their favorite thing and call it spiritual. Right? Take psychedelics, have sex. I'm spiritual. Wonderful. Good for you. I want that kind of spirituality. <laughs> Bringing the great stuff down to our level again. It's always that. So yeah, my view on sex is also controversial from the modern point of view, but exactly in accordance with it, the teachings of any of the, the great spiritual teachers that are, you know, these days they'd consider them prudish. Too savory, right? What about ejaculation? That's something that's uh, a big topic in internal arts, I think, and to a certain, yeah. to a certain extent meditation, but uh, certainly in internal arts. How do you see that, if, if at all, relating to the themes we've discussed today? Oh, definitely related. I mean, uh, it's a big source of energy. If you do it too much, you're going to have low energy. But I don't think you should do weird stuff either. Just have sex like a normal person, less often. Don't be weird about it. I think that's it. Say I think the same about food and sleep and all that. Normal functions of life need to be normal. So you can step up. So when I teach groups, the first thing I say is, you, know, you need to learn how to be normal. You need to stop your corrupt sexuality. You need to be able to keep a job, stop arguing with your girlfriend, eat normal food. You know, stop being a weirdo, like stop it. Learn normalcy. Learn how to function in normal life, step one. Step two, start worrying about elevated ideas like spirituality. But if you can't do normal life, food, sex, relationships, work, you know? I can't keep a job. You know, I can't eat with my friends because I'm too specialized. 
and like I can't have normal sex and I just oh you mean you're dysfunctional you can't do the basic level it's kind of sila isn't it you have to get your basics down and then cultivate cultivation I talk about this as cultivation not religion cultivation well you need a base if you want to cultivate and the base has to be stable and if the base is weird it's not stable people don't maintain their really exotic weird extreme diet no their weird exotic sexual habit no they, they can't maintain their work life you know they bring the stress home and they argue with their partners how are you going to build a spiritual life on top of that you can't right you might be able to imagine you have one but you can't build a real one so this is sila sila for non-monastics right as taught by the christ the buddha and all of the great saints and sages since the beginning of time but in modern people don't like that stuff I want to keep all my little corruptions and deviations and be super uber spiritual. Right? That's, I think this is a problem. Would you say something about the differences that I've heard you express elsewhere in terms of the path men and women take in yeah, spirituality? Well, the differences are more about the body. So it's early phases for internal training and where you focus, what, what kind, how much time you spend in different phases. It's more about inner work in terms of the chi and the channels and that kind of stuff and less about meditation. Some of the best meditators I've met have been women actually, post-menopause. Yeah. Everything calms down sexuality disappears unless you're attached to it in the mind and you hold on to it the actual thing that's organic and basic in your body disappears they calm down boom i've met amazing meditators uh, females of that kind of age group yeah i mean the technicalities need to be learned from a teacher but i mean we're obviously not the same <laughs> right you can i can tell what a man is and what a woman is i mean it's not a mystery i can see them we're not the same the inner workings not the same the energy is not the same hormones right hormones change the way we function and think and everything and the way they need to transform and be trained it's not the same the body of the work is the same but there's tweaking and intricacies that are not the same that need to be learned from a a live teacher and do you think what i said earlier is a fair summary of your view uh, to do with sex and emotion etc desire and emotion yeah about the it's harder for men in the beginning and easier for uh, women in the beginning and vice versa yeah yeah absolutely yeah totally i mean you're a man <laughs> you know right and yeah we're more driven by that base because of the hormonal state 
and it's frowned upon like it's not acceptable like the way women when they're hormonal but that's okay you know oh, she's just hormonal well men are hormonal too right it's just different it's a different thing to get beyond and then women with the emotions it's a bit different to the way men deal with emotions different parts of the path are faster and different parts of the path are slower it's not an advantage or a disadvantage in the long run but at any given time, it is. It's like in Tai Chi, it being soft. The women are really, it's easy for them to be soft. They, has a huge, they have a huge advantage. But at making power, well, they have a disadvantage. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. It's one part of it is easier for. But denying that kind of thing, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. It's intentionally closing your eyes. And it, it takes away from people's... Uh, opportunity to cultivate properly this has been very fascinating adam there is one question that i i think i mean there's a lot more i could i could ask you perhaps we'll have to have to talk again sometime but a lot more dimensions to your uh meditation understanding and practice that we haven't we haven't discussed but we've, we've done i think quite a bit of it a fair, fair chunk but one thing that of course if anyone googles you adam meisner and of course, there'll be links in the show notes if people want to find your websites and so on, including your meditation course. But if people Google you, just your name, what they're going to find is lots of different things, but videos of you engaging in demonstration of sort of pushing people. Well, that's not quite the right way of putting it, but sort of what would the right way be? What would what would be a good layman's verb? Yeah, well, it's push hands tai chi fajin whatever right kind of moving people in an extraordinary way let's put it that way you know moving people in an extraordinary way without appearing to use the usual principles of leverage and so on people are touching you in various ways and you're able to somehow reach into them uh energetically and, and cause these very strange strange looking effects hmm. um physics defying push hands i've heard it described as you know this sort of idea and one thing i heard <laughs> because it's, it's not based on physics right and you've already I think, everything real is physics but it's not balls and levers physics would be a better way to right one thing i heard you say about that that i thought was so interesting that i i can't really not ask you is that you talked about using tai chi to overcome the fight or flight response to balance the fight or flight response mm -hmm. and you also said that the one of the mechanisms of this extraordinary moving of people that people can see you do if they if they uh, look look for you on YouTube and so on, is the student's fight or flight response. And then if the student wasn't to have a fight or flight response, to so you simply just touching them, a subtle fight or flight response, you yeah. wouldn't be able to do that. And I thought that was very interesting indeed. And you also linked that fight or flight response that one works with in Tai Chi to the kind of equanimity one uh, strives for in, uh, you know, maybe that's the wrong word in meditation. No, equanimity. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the striving, I think is the, is the word that was, uh, you know, I'm, I laugh at myself to use that, but nonetheless, oh, yeah. I'm pro striving. Okay. <laughs> strive, strive for equanimity. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's very interesting. Can you talk a bit about that? The mechanism of that, uh, extraordinary moving that you're doing, how that relates to the fight or flight response. I thought that was very interesting take on that. Hmm. Okay, it's kind of broad, but I'll try to talk about it a little bit. So Tai Chi means yin yang, right? 
it's these opposing balancing qualities. And the goal of Tai Chi, in my opinion, at least the path to it is called Zhong Ding, which means something like equanimity. It usually is called central equilibrium. So that means neither yin or yang. The balancing line between them, the curvy S in the yin-yang symbol. So you don't run away and you don't butt in to experience, which I'm sure you can see the correlation to Buddhist work. You stay with the way things are with equanimity. You don't butt in and you don't run away. Now in Tai Chi, you want to cultivate it in a way that it's a reality in your nervous system. So I always say people lie all the time. Their personality lies, their mind lies, but their nervous system doesn't lie. So someone acts calm, you know, I, I'm vegetarian. I only eat mung beans and I'm all about love. And as soon as you put your hands on them, they stiffen up. They stiffen up because of fear, right? And aggression and things like this. In other words, they don't have love, equanimity or any of those things. They're lying. They might not know it, but it's a veneer. So when the nervous system changes, well, you've changed. I mean, Western science would basically say the closest thing to you is the nervous system. I don't think it's that wrong. I mean, of course, I think it's more, it's the spirit soul is what I think, but from a more material, testable point of view, the nervous system is primary. So we're teaching our nervous system to react with equanimity with release. So you have the fight or flight response, which is very subtle or very extreme. And you learn to let go into an emptiness and a stillness to let go of the reaction of pushing in or running away. In other words, you're doing Vipassana in the nervous system. Yeah? And that's when you can do that, you feel alien to the non-Tai Chi creature human truly alien. When they touch you, they, it feels bizarre because they've never felt anything like that in their life. Because everyone always reacts with fight or flight, always. It's just you don't realize because it's so subtle. So for whatever reason, which I don't understand, it makes their nervous system freeze. It gets stuck. And that's, it turns them into kind of a stiff object. And then they're stuck, they're a stiff object because you are, you feel alien to them, to their nervous system. It's got nothing to do with the intellect or the mind. It still happens to my students of more than 10 years. They know it's coming, but their nervous system still reacts the same way. Then they get thrown out because of other mechanisms about moving the chi inside to make power and stuff like that. But for the fight or flight response, it's about this equanimity that's alien to, to, uh, normal motor activity and sort of perception of the mind. You don't know how to put force on it. What? It's not forward. It's not back. It's nowhere. It's everywhere. It's empty. It's full. It's not the brain, maybe part of the brain, the nervous system, not the mind is confused. And that's basically how it works. Does that make any sense at all? I know it's out there. Yes, I think it's very interesting. How does one transcend that? If or how does one find the equanimity in the nervous system to mix the mix the uh, streams there? 
uh, your students of 10 years, some of them, you say, still have that response. Is, yeah. is, it, is it likely they'll ever get beyond that? I think everyone has it unless you're fully liberated. It's the matter of degrees. How much do you have it? You only need to have more of the equanimity and jungting than the person you're touching, right? If you have enough differential, you can create the effect. Same as any activity involving two people. Yep. So you do it via consciously releasing stress first to your own experience by yourself solo through bitter training, in other words, pain, and then through applied stress via a partner. And you learn how to realize what it feels like to be in this peaceful equanimity state in the nervous system, mind and body. And then you gradually learn how to maintain it under varying conditions, much like the meditative path when you get off the mat. So the reason why I delve so deeply into Tai Chi is I realized it's meditation off the mat for me. It, it's served me so well. And many people that I've taught years of meditation and years of Tai Chi have got more spiritually out of the Tai Chi than out of the meditation because it's integrated equanimity. Not I'm peaceful when I'm on the mat and then I get up or, or someone disturbs my meditation and I'm pissed off. You know, it's, it undoes that tendency because it's the opposite. It's cultivated under stresses, maybe only gentle ones in the beginning, but not perfectly solo, sitting still, quiet, you know. Yeah, so it's like that. And I think that's its actual purpose, among other things. But I think the true purpose of Tai Chi is definitely cultivation spiritual and that self-defense is just a byproduct. Have you ever touched Luang Po's body? Uh, many times, but I've never tried to do Tai Chi on him. I wouldn't dare. No, I've, I mean, I've put my hands on him thousands of times, but I've never. Yeah. So the question is, does the normal, let's say a liberated person from meditation have the same thing? Basically, that's the inquiry, right? Do they get that equanimity in the nervous system? I would say they do get beyond the fight or flight response, yes. But do they have the same result where people bounce off them? No, because that's cultivated through the very specific sort of inner work with the chi and the way you develop the white tissue in your body. And it's technical. It's specific. Do they have the equanimity part? Yes. Therefore, could they get really good at it in no time? Absolutely. The moment they built the creature, they could do it where for a normal person, building the creature is the first stage and then developing the other stuff is the rest of your life. So it's like a reversal. I hope that makes sense. I know it's weird talk if you're not a Tai Chi guy. But... Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, I appreciate you so candidly sharing your opinions, views, and experiences. I know, like you said, some of them are controversial. That is, that is true. But... I think I appreciate you sharing them. Thank you. Uh, is there anything we ought to say before we finish? I think we're coming to an end now. Is there, of course, all the links to all your sites and so on will be in the show notes. So if people want to find out more about you, Tai Chi, meditation, etc., all those links will be down there. Uh, but is there anything that you want to say or we haven't said that we ought to say before we finish? Oh, I think for, for seekers and cultivators is that they have to do do real stuff, including morality. 
and uh, their normal life. Cultivate morality and do service and do real practices with body, with the body and the inner body and the mind, but don't just pretend. Turn the light around, look at yourself and realize what's pretend and try to throw away the pretend and cultivate the real. That would be my advice. Adam Meisner, thank you very much. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.